Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Spirits Podcast Episode 64, Jane Eyre with Vanessa Zoltan. Never thought that would be a title of one of our episodes. I know, I know. So listen, guys, it's a little bit different. We are talking today about a personal mythology, a text that has like had a lot of meaning to our guest. Vanessa has really shaped her life, mine too, um, and kind of the ways in which we construct our personal mythologies around the stuff that we love, and also the ways in which Jane Eyre itself is like a mythological text. Right. And that makes total sense because if you don't know Vanessa's name just from us talking about it. I have good news for you. There's a new podcast you love. (laughs) She is one of the co-hosts of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text which takes each chapter of Harry Potter and treats it like a sacred text, like the Bible or Quran, 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 any any sort of sacred text that one would take lessons from by reading. Yeah. So like, how do we read this text as an instruction for life? And so they read basically each chapter through a lens of like humility and loneliness and love, commitment, all of the sort of, I don't know, like for someone like, you know, us who loves Harry Potter and will take any excuse to revisit the books. Mm-hmm. It's delightful to, for example, experience them through the eyes of a newbie in Mike Schubert in Potterless, mm-hmm. which I recommend everybody subscribe to. But also having this really specific, like literary, you know, textual analysis. It's like college all over again in the very best way. And I love it so much. But even if you're not a like religious person, if you're not a literary person, if you're not a school person, it's just very thoughtful it. and insightful. It's very thoughtful, very insightful. And Vanessa is a delight. Uh, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Again, subscribe to it. It's excellent. They're in Goblet of Fire right now. There's a lot for you to catch up on. But I'm really stoked about it. And we're going to just blast through the rest of this intro so you guys can get to the good, good interview. Uh, You know who else is good, good? Uh, I bet it's our newest patrons. It is. Tell us about them. Aw, well, we would love to welcome our newest patrons, Kelsey, Ida Maria, Tabra Maria, and Brenton. Welcome to the family. Welcome. And additionally, thank you so much, as always, to our supporting producer-level patrons, some of the people who help us do this every single week. Neil, Philip, Julie, Sarah, Christina, Josh, Eeyore, Sandra, Cami, Lindsay, Ryan, Shelby, Lynn, Mercedes, Phil, Catherine, and Deborah. Y'all are the feminist romanticism icons of our heart. I love it. I love it. And uh, definitely not Rochester are our legend level patrons. That's a, that's a little preview. Stuck in the attic. Little preview of our hot take. Uh, Leanne, Ashley, Cassie, Ashley Marie, and Bridge. You guys are definitely not the creepy wives in the attic unless you want to be. Sometimes in which case you totally do. are. Sometimes I am want definitely the, the nightgowned wife in the attic. Like, come on. Okay. <laughs> if you say so. Um, and Julia, you mentioned to me that we're near a milestone. We are. Uh, so we have, at last count, 
462 ratings on iTunes. I want to get it to 500 because I like round numbers. Kind of close to 500, isn't it? So if you um, haven't taken the time to either on a desktop computer, laptop, whatever, go to iTunes uh, and review us in Apple Podcasts or on your iPhone to open up the podcasts app and give us a rating and or a nice review, we would really appreciate it. That would be great. It would be really, really great. We love you all. I know. I'm actually going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to read our most recent review on the, uh, bring it up. Hold on. So this is uh, our most recent review. Uh, this is from the Jones 912. And they said, based on the cover art, I wasn't quite sure what I was getting into, but I was super happy to find a well-researched and passionate discussion on indigenous folklore in the episode I checked out. You'll have a great time and learn a lot, especially if you enjoy mythology and cultural stories. Subscribed. Oh, Thank you, Thank the Jones912. Thank you, Jones. That's so sweet of you. Uh, and if you review the podcast in the next week or so, I might read your review on the show. That is a good incentive, Jules. I, I like love it. it. I want you to read words I write, and we talk every single day. <laughs> that is true. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, Billy, why don't we tell them what we're about, man? So we're here to welcome you to the Madhouse Chronicles. It's a talk show with myself, Billy Morrison. And 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 this man, Prince of Darkness. And we watch and react to the maddest internet clips. What do we discuss, Ozzy? Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, all that kind of shit. Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, and all that kinds of shit. Come and join Ozzy and myself. Visit OsborneMediaHouse.com to get special access to... Come on! What do you say? Do you think it's the wildest show on the internet (laughs) all right so we would love again to thank vanessa for guest starring and also to apologize because we recorded this literally a year ago sorry (laughs) we're very sorry listen it's just it's how it shook out Mm -hmm. and we love this episode we are so glad we're able to dust it off and present it to you like a disney remastered out of the vault dvd (laughs) here for you from the spirit's vault from the spirit's vault it's episode 64 Jane Eyre with Vanessa Zoltan. So we are so happy today to be with Vanessa Zoltan, who is co-host of the fabulous Harry Potter and the Sacred Text podcast. Guys, you know how much we love Harry Potter. You know how much we love this podcast. We talk about it all the time. And how much I love literary analysis. And so when I I saw Vanessa, I I must uh, confess your podcast, I was like, oh man, I hope this is going to be good because it's two of my favorite things. And lo and behold, it is better than I could have imagined. It absolutely is. So good. So thank you for coming on, Vanessa. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor. And, you know, talking about stories and analyzing them and drinking are some of my favorite things. I mean, what can be better? That's why we're here. Um, (laughs) But Julia, for once, does not know what we're actually going to talk about today. It's a strange and weird thing, but I'm ready for it. Vanessa, what are we going to be talking about today? So I'm going to tell a story from Jane Eyre. Oh, Oh, yes! Amanda's eyes just bugged out in excitement. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I mean, Jane Eyre is my favorite novel of all time. and Great star. We should be friends. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, anybody who's not, you're a little bit dumb. I'm just kidding. I'm sure you're a wonderful they, they person. They just haven't gotten the right inroad yet to no, the novel. No, they read it when they were in eighth grade, and then they didn't really get a good experience yeah, with you, it. Yeah, you just got to pick your, you know, choose your own adventure, choose your own route through the book. 
Yeah, but it's so good. Everybody should just read it and reread it and reread it. <laughs> and um, it is the first book that I practiced doing secular sacred reading with. So oh, it's nice. a book that I have spent a lot of time with. So. Can you uh, explain your technique just very briefly um, to listeners who may not have listened to your show yet, but soon will? Yes. Um, So we believe that you can treat anything that is secular as sacred and um, believe that doing so gives you a lot of gifts. So I was raised as an atheist, but was really craving, you know, the ability to make meaning of the world around me. Um, And so I picked something that I loved, Jane Eyre. Um, And yeah, we have like a three-step process, which is one, if you treat the thing you love with with commitment, so believing that the more time you spend with it, the more gifts it will give you. Two, with rigor. So we use traditionally religious practices in order to analyze the texts, but certainly, you know, literary practices or, you know, depending on what it is you're treating as sacred, just whatever that is, do an authentic rigorous practice. And then three is in community. Um, and so we have our listeners and they send in voicemails and um, or we also have a reading group that meets once a week and we talk about the text together. So yeah, so I did that with Jane Eyre, um, first with a professor for six months and then I ran a Jane Eyre as a sacred text reading group for six months. And so cool. Yeah, it's <laughs> the best. So I am so excited to hear everything you have to say. Okay, so should I just just dive right in? That's good. Should I just start telling my story? Yeah, go for it. So I'm this this whole thing should be called spoiler alert because this is like the big twist in the novel. Getting right to it, right to the attic lives. Yes. Because it's so good. Okay, so Jane is poor, plain, and little. Uh, She's an orphan for simplicity's sake, and she um, becomes a governess at a big house. She becomes a governess to a little French girl, and the ward of this little French girl is Mr. Rochester. And, of course, Mm, he's very— Yes, he's so dreamy. He's also sort of an asshole, but, you know, he's a dreamy asshole. (laughs) And um, so they fall in love, and he's wealthy, and she's poor, you know, and obscure, and all these words she uses for herself. And um, But he proposes, and they're going to get married, and he decides that they have to get married within three weeks. Suspicious. That is, yeah, that's not great. (laughs) Yeah, super short engagement, ladies. Take, Take care. Yeah, it never means anything good if he's demanding that. Yeah. Um, and in the meantime, this house just like sort of seems vaguely haunted. They live in Thornfield Hall, which is this huge house with lots of servants, including a servant named Grace Poole, who seems to be an alcoholic and have like fits of rage sometimes. And it's like unclear, but there's like a lot of banging around the house. There's a fire started by supposedly by Grace Poole, etc. So anyway, the wedding day comes. Jane and Rochester go down the hill to the church. And it's just the two of them at the wedding. They have, like, a local person as the witness and the priest. And as they are about to get married, a solicitor storms through the door and says, you cannot get married. Rochester is already married to Bertha Mason. (gasps) Gasp. Gasp. (laughs) And Jane just sort of, you know, stands there. And Rochester stands there for a good amount of time and is like, what do I do? What do I do? (laughs) Oh, no. The thing has happened. Yeah, the shoe has dropped. And he finally decides, he like, he finally decides to speak up and he goes, bigamy is an ugly word, but I meant to be a bigamist. 
Wow. I forgot that was a line in I Jane Eyre. That was a line. Wow, oh, yeah. Rochester. Really just the kind of dry humor is not appropriate. That's also like <laughs> some like assholey um, Andrew Jackson bullshit right there. <laughs> oh, like, it's... are you really accusing me of this right now? Like, yes, Andrew Jackson. You're committing genocide. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. Isn't that terrible for you? Well, yeah. And then Rochester actually goes on like a Jacksonian like victim rant. That right? sounds right. He's like, yep. He's. Um, he grabs Jane by the hand and he demands that the priest, the solicitor, and the, his brother-in-law follow him up to the house and they go straight up to the attic of the house where Jane has always thought the Grace Pool lives. And it turns out the Grace Pool is the woman in charge of Rochester's wife, Bertha Mason Rochester, who is the quote-unquote mad woman in the attic. So she's the one who has set the fire in the house. She's the one who has attacked people. She's the one who's caused all this chaos. And Rochester says, you know, I'm sorry, Jane, but look at the animal to whom I am married. They tricked me into marrying her. They didn't tell me that she was mad and had a mad mother. And, like, basically, and Jane just sort of stands there in shock and, you know, eventually goes back to her room and yeah. like, doesn't Same, Jane. Cry. Same. Yeah, Rochester's like, isn't my life hard? Oh, God. Jane's like, it's our literal wedding day. <laughs> Rochester <laughs> is like that douchey guy on Tinder who after like two days of texting, he's like, we have to meet up. I'm like, no, we don't. I don't owe you anything, guy. <laughs> or, I mean, like, yeah, Rochester in this moment is a lot of things. And then actually, so the next scene, which isn't a great, like, plot scene, but is, I think, one of my favorite scenes in all of literature, where Rochester is explaining to Jane the history of what happened. And he says to her, whom would you offend by le- by staying with me? And, she, you know, and whenever he says that, I'm like, yeah, Jane, whom would you offend? Like, nobody knows about this wife. You guys could be happy together. Yeah. And then she has the best line. And she says, myself. Okay, good, because that's what I was going to say. Jane has too much self-respect. Yep. I Work must it, respect myself. Principles are not for the times in which we are not tested. They are for times such as these. I mean, it's like, oh, you know. Um, really just, so just perfect. pure. Just, I just put my pure. hands up in the praise emoji style. Like, yes, oh, she bless, did. Jane. She really bless. did. <laughs> she's, she's sort of, yeah, she's sort of perfect. She's just, I mean, over and over again, it's I must leave you, sir. And one really interesting thing in the scene that comes right after is that Jane's thoughts are often in quotation marks because she, you know, she talks directly to the reader. And so she'll say, reader, I thought, comma, quote, and then tell us what you think, what Mm -hmm. she thought. Awesome. But in this scene, it's very unclear when she's thinking something and when she's saying it out loud. Oh, man, because she's self-actualized. She's she's like representing the, the purest, you know, her purest heart, her purest intentions and thoughts. Right, so she says things every once in a while. You can follow it. She'll go, "Reader, I forgave him once. I, I forgave him at once, but not out loud." And then she tells you in quotes what her forgiveness of him is. But without that little hint, you wouldn't know if she had said it or it just thought it. But often in that scene, you're not sure if she said things out loud or is just telling you what her innermost thoughts were at that mm-hmm. moment. That's kind of and beautiful writing. It is. It is. Oh, and it's, it's insane. And it's kind of um, indicative, too, of what it's like when you're in love with somebody. Mm-hmm. Where, where Absolutely. Feels as if, yeah, like your purest self and their purest self, you know, it's it's just kind of an ongoing conversation and the barriers and like blah, 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 blah. Oh, and I mean, in a previous scene, in like the weirdest scene in all of literature, when Rochester is dressed up 
There's a that great a line. Weird I knew exactly what you were going for. <laughs> but um, he says to her, I can read your forehead. And then he does. Um, and it's, you know, I can live alone if self-respect and dignity require me so to do. And she's like, yeah, like – you can lose track of that and think that it's Jane talking, but it's Rochester reading her forehead. So, like, they they seem to—I mean, they also eventually hear each other across time and space. He yells they Jane do. They do. from, like, hundreds of miles away, and she hears him on the wind. So, like, <laughs> there's definitely an argument being made for a certain kind of love there. But anyway— that's hella that is, uh, psyche and eros too. Like going back to is. the hearkening to the Greek mythology, there um, psyche has to battle all the way back and forth through hell and back, literally, uh, to find eros again. And then eros is able to find her, and it's amazing and beautiful. And they learn to trust and love each other again. But I, I dig that. I'm I'm super into that idea that love can bring people together, even if it's not physically. Like yep. metaphysically. Yeah. Yeah. And what's so interesting, so so Jane, uh, so they get separated, of course, for, you know, a third of the book. And then Jane hears Rochester calling her on, in the wind from hundreds of miles away. On the moors. And, and, yeah, on the moors when Sinja, I mean, it's interesting on so many levels. But anyway, they get reunited. And Rochester then says to her, you know, there was a night that I was so desperate for you. I called for you. And Jane is like, what? Oh, I heard you. But Jane says, reader, I never told him because I like and then now I'm going to paraphrase. But it's like because I thought it would freak him out too much. And so it's so weird that like they have this connection. But then on this other level, she like doesn't feel comfortable telling him the extent to which they have the connection. Wait, also, I just thought of a Harry Potter scene that this is related to. Oh, please. Ooh, um, please. And it is the uh, scene in the seventh book where Ron had left uh, oh, after yeah. that whole situation, and he was able to hear Harry and hear Hermione's them. conversations when he's playing with the deluminator. The lighter, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The put-outer, which is what it's called in the first book. Exactly. And the yeah. deluminator in the seventh book. And yeah. he just, like, comes back and he tells them, like, I heard you guys and I missed you and I knew you needed help, so I yep. came. Yep, a strong, a, a force stronger than than sound, you know, brought them together. Yeah. Beautiful. And, uh, and um, I, I'm also so curious about Jane's decision to, to keep back that information. Um, it's almost as if it was a sort of private confirmation for her of their bond, and that's all she needed, you know, and, and they know what they mean to one another, and so it's not important why she's back. Um, but you know, she, she doesn't need perhaps to like, to divulge that she's gotten that confirmation from like the universe that, okay, yes, this is where I'm meant to be. Yeah. And it, I mean, like it also a little bit shows that like Jane is a stone cold bitch, right? (laughs) She can hold that. It's, you know, the whole story is told from 10 years later. Yeah. So it's been 10 years and she like hasn't told her husband that she heard him calling her on the wind. Like, yeah, because otherwise what, she just showed up because she, you know, like felt bad or wanted to come back. I guess that's what she is allowing him to believe. Yeah, that almost makes her seem like the desperate ex, which I don't like. Or alternatively, the person with so much like compassion and, and, and whatever that she like couldn't leave an unresolved you know, I strand. think that's probably more what they were going for, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I like well, the desperate I think ex look. The... 
I th- I mean the way that she positions herself it's so weird. I mean it's so weird. The reun- the whole book is so weird, which is why it's so good. But I know those last couple chapters our whole senior English class was like come the fuck on. What is happening? <laughs> like Oh yeah, she's just Sinjin torturing here. him. Yeah. Oh oh no, Sinjin is Sinjin is the actual worst. I don't remember anything about Sinjin besides he blocked it out probably. besides me going his name is St. John. They're like, no, it's Sinjin. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's definitely St. John. Oh, Sinjin, I mean, okay, so I actually have a theory as to why Jane can hear Rochester on the moors, and that is because Sinjin has been, like, wearing her down about marrying him for months. Yeah. And he is using literally the threat of the wrath of God. He's like, I have prayed on it, and I am a minister, yep. and it is your calling to come to India with to me, India and, with me yeah. and and most likely die. And I am 100% sure, and it is your calling to do that as my wife, not as my sister, even though they're cousins. And he is just, and she's finally starting to give in for the first time. Oh, Vanessa, and I think she, I know where you're going with this, and I'm really excited. <laughs> she is about to say yes, and that is when she hears Rochester calling her. And so I feel like in a moment of desperation, like somehow the universe is like, don't do it, yeah. and like takes care of her. Like and, maybe a literal act of God. Yes, yeah. Which is she's amazing. Like, Right, and it gives the woman the prophecy instead of the man. The man is like, I am going to use my religious authority as a tool of oppression. And she's like, boom, I actually have a direct line to God. Which is almost um, her graduation from Sinjin school because the, the whole kind ooh, of portion I of the book. I love that. Thanks, girl. But the, the whole portion of the book, she's learning literal languages, you know, like she she is is opening her mind exactly like learning a new profession, living alone. You know, that's really a period of like awakening and learning and, and gaining wisdom for her. And so the fact that she can interpret and then act on, um, you know, a, whatever divine, uh, divine kind of message, or if it's just, you know, something that she sees in the world and, and decides that this is the moment that she makes a, a change in her life, um, you know, that's the kind of self-actualization and, and agency that was previously denied, you know, to her. Yeah, I just love that. I don't really have anything else to say about that. There's an interesting theological argument being made throughout the books that I can't quite make sense of that what you just said reminded me of, which is that there's certainly Christianity, that, she, but she's like graduating past St. John's Christianity. And there's all of this talk in the books of like uh, in the novel about like sprites and fairies and spirits. Right. And but it's also, of course, like very Christian. But then there are different Christian theologies without it throughout it. Like Mr. Brocklehurst is like, you are a bad child. And so you will go to hell. Whereas Helen, Jane's best friend, is like, we all go to heaven. Right. So it seems as though Jane's like more naturalized, romanticized, Moorish Christianity is is the one that wins out until Jane, who narrates the whole 550-page novel, for some reason gives St. John the last word, and the last line of the novel is a quote from St. John's last letter to her, and it's, Here I come, Lord Jesus. Maybe she's so, just allowing him to hang himself with his own noose, <laughs> you know, or, or just allowing himself to, I don't know, represent um, represent himself as the path not taken. I also don't hate the idea of her taking this sort of uh, Christianity or 
brand of Christianity that was totally eclipsing her and pressuring her and adapting it into her own. Yeah, it, it almost feels like the, the argument is that true love and faith conquer all. And, and Jane kind of gets there despite the systems put in place around her because she is institutionalized for the entire novel. Like she's just kind of passing through different kinds of shackles from the orphanage um, where she kind of spends the first bit of the book and her best friend dies. That's really sad. And there's plague and she's like abused by people. And like, it, it's awful, um, awful, except for the first page where she's in a beautiful little reading nook that all of us want to stay in forever. And then everything is terrible after that. Yeah. And then, right. So well, yeah. From- and even that, I mean, she's there because she's hiding from her abusive cousin. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, But she goes from the orphanage to a a governess job where, for my recollection, she has no time off. Like, she's in a literal house where she's in prison. Like, and then finally to, um, you know, to the the house of Sinjin where she's able to kind of rise above that and live as a schoolmistress in her, you know, in her own house in a town. Um, And then finally to decide to leave of her own, you know, free will um, and to to return to a, a nest or a house of her choosing. I don't know. Well, actually, but between those two things, she becomes independently wealthy. Yes. Does so, she? Yes, good. Yeah. A woman needs she, a room of her own and uh, and and some salary. Yeah. But you're uh, quoting it. I'm like, I don't know if that's the actual quote. It, but, it, I, was, right. I was going for it, but I couldn't get there in the end. That's fine. <laughs> well, I mean, a room of a room of one's own is Virginia Woolf, but yep. it's... Um, that's yeah, what I was sorry. trying to quote. There, there is a, a money quote of like, <laughs> of like a woman, like yeah, yeah, like a woman needs a room of one's own and something else. And an income. Well, I was actually reminded of Virginia Woolf because I wonder, you know, she loved Middlemarch, and I've never heard her talk about Jane Eyre. I've never read her write about Jane Eyre, and I just bet she hated it. Oh yeah. No, Jane Eyre is like uppity and like comes into high class without having earned it. Virginia Woolf doesn't like that shit. No. And Woolf didn't really didn't really believe in, like, brainwave connections, right? She believes that, like, we never really know each other and, like, Mr. and Mrs. Dalloway and Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey can spend their whole lives together and still look across a party at one another and be like, who are you? You're disgusting. Yeah, and even Whereas, her love letters to Vita Sackville-West, um, you know, the, the woman she was in love with for a long, long time um, or, you know, had various kinds of relationships with, uh, but there, there definitely was love there. But whenever she kind of talks about a connection or a love or a feeling that overwhelms her, it's always with suspicion and almost a little bit of derision. You know, like right. like the kind of purest love lettery that she's that she's writing. There's always a little bit of an attitude of like, isn't this bullshit? Or like, or like, I can't believe I'm saying this, but which is why teenage me really loved those letters. But <laughs> also looking back, exactly as you say, Vanessa, you know, there is really a, a kind of suspicion or or disbelief that we can never truly know one another. Right. Whereas Rochester and Jane don't like can know each other from hundreds of miles away. Yeah. Yeah. And and in a way, then her love with of Rochester and with Rochester is kind of the opposite of Sinjin's perceived love, because Jane and Sinjin like get to know each other uh, laboriously. They talk for a long time, like they correspond for a long time. It, it really is a process of like unfurling the, the story and, and fact of themselves to one another. And they don't click in that way, you know, and, and Sinjin believes that just because they've like worked at it for long enough, you know, like this is how this relationship culminates. Whereas with Jean and Rochester, you know, if it wasn't necessarily love at first sight across a room, it, it was quite close to that. Um, and so exactly, it's almost like that, that unasked for effortless connection is what ends up um, um, trumping in the end effort that while well-intentioned ended up just not clicking or, or being futile. 
Right. But it's even um, – it's effortless connection, but it's a tremendous amount of effort to make the relationship work. You're totally right. Yeah. Connection, but then then the love takes effort. Yeah. The house has to burn down and he has to get maimed and she has to like, you know, perish in the wilderness for three days like yeah. Jesus. I mean, like <laughs> they have to put yeah. a ton of work in. But right, it does seem to be an argument for like don't throw away love. It's rare and special. I don't know. I don't know if there is an argument to be had or just I, I've always loved Jane Eyre as, as kind of one woman's life, just a story of one woman's choices and, and how they ended up um, and maybe – you know, my reading of the book has changed every time I've read it. And I've read it maybe four or five times since I was, you know, 16. Um, but that's that's why I, I like it the most. It doesn't seem to be making a kind of overarching argument for the world. Um, mm-hmm. It seems more, you know, of, of what we can understand about ourselves and our own choices from from this one person's story. Um, so I don't I don't know. Do you read any kind of bigger, uh, bigger argument from it? Well, I mean, when you're reading a text is sacred, the whole point is to try to read it as as instructive. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I try to put it in conversation with my life. And I think the same sentence can um, teach me something totally different each time I return to the text. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, I think, you know, if you put in the effort of treating something as it as it can be instructive. I don't know what else. I, the truth is, is that I'm out of options. I don't know where else to turn for instruction except for art that I admire and feel like if I gave up Charlotte Bronte and Virginia Woolf and J.K. Rowling as my instructors, I'm like, I would be at a total loss. I wouldn't know where to look anymore. So I, I, I mean, I reject some of Jane's decisions. You know, I I honestly think I would have stayed with Rochester when he's like, let's go to the south of France and, like, no one will know that we're not technically married. Sounds dope. We I already do have that. a kid. She's south 10. Of France. I don't have to let's birth a kid. It. Do it. Right. And, like, and and she has known suffering, right? She, like, laid in a bed with her best friend while she died. She, like, knows death can come any minute and that, like, life is, like, short and hard. Like, take your happiness where you can find it, right? But I, I respect her decision. And... There are moments in which I opt for the, no, no, I must respect myself. And there are moments in which I'm like, do you know what? Fuck it. Life is short. I'm going to, you know, give up this false sense of dignity in order to, you know, live my life today. So I put myself in conversation with it and use it as instructive. That doesn't mean I'm, like, looking at a bracelet asking myself, like, what would Jane do? And then, like, (laughs) emulating it. Totally. And and like Charlotte, like that's what I kind of mean when I say like, I don't think Charlotte Bronte is arguing or, or trying to persuade us to right. act one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly like I think so much of the charm is that Jane acts in ways that are that are, that are contradictory or that you oh, are yeah. kind of against expectation. And just, I don't know, for me at 16, like reading someone else's contradictory choices and, and like loving her anyway, you know, and seeing that like life works out no matter which choices you make, like, you know, you're going to find fulfillment or you're going to, you know, settle and, and reconcile with your choices some way or another. Um, yeah. That that was a, a great lesson for me at the time. And it's so different from most of the myths that we talk about and most of the it stories is. we talk about, because usually myths and uh, stories and folklore are used as instructional, but in a bad way, like don't do this thing or yes. you will die like this person. Right. Like in a very didactic way. Exactly. Right. So it's it's nice to see a story uh, that maybe came out of that mythology that came out of Joseph Campbell's idea of the hero's journey and being like, okay, she she made the right decisions this time. We're happy for her. Yeah, she she refused the call and then came back to yeah. her later. And we're totally okay with that. 
That's totally And she fine. ended up, like, healthy, happy, and rich, right? Yep. Like, she, like, wins. That's, like, those are the three big ones. That's it where is. you want to be. <laughs> yeah, and, like, pure of heart and, like, a good, right? Like, she, she just, like, wins. Yeah, like, didn't compromise her values or anything to get to that place. That's amazing. Yeah, she almost, she gave up the more trivial or the more um, transient uh, happiness and, and comforts to really get to the, the the final and the big and the the big kahuna like like the good one at the end. <laughs> yeah, I mean she even, yeah, I mean so when she gets engaged to Rochester, he wants to like buy her all these things and she refuses to let him. She's like, I would look stupid in diamonds. Like, yep. what are you doing? Trying to like decorate me? But then when she comes into money of her own, she immediately wants to decorate the house. She's like, I'm gonna buy nice furniture and like there's like paragraphs about the beeswax that they use to like wax the handrails like very important care and keeping of your mansion beeswax is is an important part of that (laughs) absolutely (laughs) listeners here's your house you know housekeeping tip beeswax on everything beeswax white vinegar that's all you need (laughs) yeah it really is but um and she spends like a ton of money on clothes and gloves and hat and bonnets right it's just but she's now i mean she's mature it's her money now. I also think that the difference is that she has starved in the woods for three days. And yeah. she's like, now I know what it's like to, like, really, like, be so cold and hungry that I might die. Mm-hmm. And comfortable is nice. Damn right I want a nice bonnet. Exactly. Yeah. Gloves to keep me warm in case I get locked out. Yes, please. <laughs> well, she'll, she'll have to let her in. And it's, it's good. Practical but fancy. Yes. I'm into it. I know, I know. And yeah, and she can appreciate these things now. Like she can appreciate the love with Rochester um uh, that that she earns and works for um after having, you know, given it up. And and that's just I think a theme throughout uh the novel. It takes, you know, being persecuted in the orphanage to find the value of found family later with her cousins or I guess yeah. actual family that she later finds. Um and you know, it it takes losing a best friend to really start to cherish relationships with others as well. Yeah. Ugh. Jane, she's just the best. She really is the best, Honestly. and I and I love the the kind of uh, concept that we started with the attic wives, oh, which God. number one is maybe my top band name. Uh, if I ever were to make a band name, <laughs> Amanda a, a has band. a list of band names. Though Amanda is very musically not inclined. Oh no, I'm uninclined uh. to music. Uh, but the attic. My favorite dope. game is um, from Brooklyn Nine Nine, and it's well, that's the name of your sex tape. Yes, yes. So, attic wives yeah. would be the name of your sex tape, Amanda. Honestly, <laughs> that sounds pretty legit. That sounds like a reading of a room of one's own that I would love to undertake. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it back, but. Anyway, I also love the trope of the attic wife. Like you, it's in the yeah. Simpsons. Like it, it's in kind of every like pop culture thing that you can imagine. Um, I haven't read any scholarship on it, but I super duper want to now. The Weasleys have a attic ghoul. They have there the attic go. ghoul. Yeah, or, or just like either either literally the thing in the attic that you know you don't want people seeing, or or the skeleton in your closet, skeleton in the closet. But like the attic wife is yeah. so much better, isn't it? It, it is. Well, I can, I mean, I don't know how dark you want me to take this, but stick with me long enough. Go and for I'll go it. Somewhere the bleak. darkest. You, you, you have not but, heard our Urban Legends episode. That gets dark oh, real quick. Shit. I still have nightmares okay. about that one. <laughs> I will listen. Um, so, you, I mean, there's a famous piece of literary criticism called The Mad Woman in the Attic about, like, this history of why we write yes. women as crazy and et cetera. But, um, you know, women in the attic, and I, I spent a lot of time thinking about women in basements as somebody who's, like, interested in theology 
you know, the question of suffering is always the one that you end up struggling with. It's yep. any sort of theological idea can work up until you're like, yes, but what about suffering? And for me, suffering is embodied in the image of women in basements across the world in sexual slavery and, you know, kidnapped by Boko Haram or, you know, by various sex trades. And we were just finishing, we're just finishing, um, book two, Chamber of Secrets, of the Harry Potter series. And I was like, holy shit, Ginny is a girl in the basement. Oh, also, also girl in the Ginny basement. in the basement. Yeah. Yep. Oh, God. And Ginny is literally a girl in the basement. And then and at the end, she's trying when she's trying to get out of the chamber, Ron wants to hug her. And she's too traumatized to let him touch her. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, and my 11. God. Eleven. I know. I And I think J.K. Rowling had just come off of working at Amnesty International with sex uh, trade victims. So I feel like that had to be in her mind as she was writing Ginny in that moment. But like women in like attics and basements, I mean, like that is still a like deep problem that we have existentially, psychologically, mentally, and then just like physically. Literally in, in the like, world. In a real and way. And something that's, uh, you know, um, propagated in in crime shows and crime movies, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, I find myself loving despite it being my problematic fave. Um, and, and things like, you know, SVU where, where you kind of see, um, you know, see kind of, uh, I don't know, justice being gotten, um, Not always, and people though. being rescued some of the time like that. I don't know. It's really, um, it's really cathartic in, in a way. Uh, but the sort of the revenge of the attic wife is, is more specifically what I, what I love or kind of imagining her life or imagining how she kind of rises out of her circumstances. Um, I don't, you know, you don't want to romanticize madness too much, but, I don't know, as someone who is who's tangentially mad, uh, I, I sort of love the idea that that the attic wife, you know, maybe maybe haunting is fun or maybe, you know, maybe that's the way that she can, um, you know, make mischief and, and amuse herself at night. There's something um, powerful about about dwelling with that image. Yeah, I mean, St. Teresa of Avila, who was a great like feminist and advocate within the church, but was also a woman during the Inquisition and was like, constantly being investigated by the Inquisition. The way that she talked about the revolution for women was going into your inner ca- into your inner castle Ooh. and that each of us have an inner castle within us, you know, which we can explore and find God within. And it both was like a revolutionary idea. And it's also one of like, well, we're not getting out of the attic yet. Right. Um, the Inquisition will burn me at the stake if I tell you to like get out so that you can only do it in your mind. And so I agree. I mean, there is an absolutely valid reason, a way to read Jane Eyre, that Bertha is not mad that Rochester locks her up when he finds out that her mother is black mm-hmm. and that it is entirely to do with race and that she has been driven mad by being locked in the attic. And so... Which, who wouldn't be? Yeah. yeah be locked in an attic for 10 years. I would burn the house down and jump too, for sure. And try to stab him every chance I got. That reminds me of all of the, like, really bad, uh, not bad, but Grimm's fairy tales where it's like the princess has been locked away her entire life. I'm like, she will not make a good wife. She's probably nuts at this point. She needs some, like, mental health care. She does not need some random dude taking advantage of her and taking her off to a kingdom to marry him. I know. Like, she might say yes just to get out of the castle, but, like, the second second you camp overnight, she is out of there with your horse and your your sword. As she should be. (laughs) 
oh, she probably has a shiv in her pocket. At least I hope so. Yeah, yeah or like in her braid, like Rapunzel, surprise, it's full of knives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> why did I, Rapunzel was my favorite as a kid, and I just like need to go to a therapist to talk about why I was obsessed with Rapunzel. You super should, but... and then talk about it with us, because I'd be really curious <laughs> with the answer. Yeah. Like, why? <laughs> I Why? I don't, I have no idea Mine, what mine was, was Rumpelstiltskin. Um, and really? I, I, okay, that's a good one too. Yeah, I think probably because this this kind of idea that like, um, I don't know, I, I was an unpopular kid and, and like having the having the, the secret or the knowledge and then the power to dole that out and to reject or to accept other people's um, kind of attempts to get it. I, th- I think that spoke to my inner, uh, my inner, inner need for acceptance and power. I think a Little Mermaid, the original one, was always mine, and I, I don't know what is wrong with me. Escapism, I don't know. I guess so, but also where she was like, "Oh, you know, if he, it's not about him falling in love with you. You just have to kill him so that you can stay a human." I'm like, "Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair trade would do that That's to awesome. be a mermaid." <laughs> oh, absolutely. The things I would do to spend my whole life in water. Oh, yes, please. So good. <laughs> I I use Airbnb sometimes just to have a bathtub. That's a real thing. Oh my yes. gosh, Vanessa is so relatable. We're going to be such good friends. It's oh all my good. Gosh, I can't wait. Bathtubs are the best. If that's not, a, I, why doesn't Jane talk about that anyway? I guess they, I was that really a thing back then? Yeah, they weren't really washing for her. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if, I think high class, you're, you're yeah. getting baths drawn for you every couple weeks. That's, that's true. Ugh. Every couple weeks, though. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, Vanessa, thank you so much for taking the time to come with us and to talk about your personal mythos and your personal sacred text of Jane Eyre. Thank you so much. I mean, I'll talk about Jane Eyre with you guys anytime you want. So Next time we're know. in Boston, next time you're in New York, we'll, we'll do this in person. Yes. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Uh, Vanessa, is there anything you would like to plug? Apart from the excellent Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, y'all, subscribe now. Yes, definitely subscribe to that and to our podcast. And I don't know, everybody go read Jane Eyre. There are so many great retellings of it. There's Read Jane that just came out last year. And yes. Rebecca is great. And I there are just a million ways to read Jane Eyre. So yeah. everybody should go do it. I'm going to steal Amanda's copy on my way out the door today. I have three copies, Julia, so you can have your pick. Yes. Do you want the Norton Critical Edition? I want the smallest one. Do you the want the Pocket one. Reader? The okay, pocket all right. Reader. Pocket Reader. There you go. Uh, and and I think I speak for probably all three of us when I say, like, we are here for the four-person Jane Eyre book club, like, in ad infinite time. How all do you that. Yes. That? For, for all time. Like, tweet us <laughs> if you're reading Jane Eyre. We are here to talk about it with you. Yes. Forever. Absolutely. Uh, and listeners, thank you so much. Remember... Stay creepy. Stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Spirits Podcast. We also have all our episodes, collaborations, and guest appearances, plus merch on our website, spiritspodcast.com. Come on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Throw us as little as $1 and get access to audio extras, recipe cards, director's commentaries, and patron-only live streams. And hey, if you like the show, please share us with your friends. That is the best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.